Shalom and welcome again to today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, and again, if you'd like to um, make a, a suggestion or a comment about the programs or suggestions for future ideas, email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com and check out the website jewishsacredaging.com for a variety of different resources, etc that speak to our generation. Um, speaking of our generation, it is with great pleasure and much anticipation uh, that I welcome uh, to today's show, uh, Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, uh, professor at my alma mater, Temple University, the great mighty Temple Owls, who has um, just recently written this book for all of us, you and your adult child, uh, subtitled, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times, that title alone could keep us going for maybe two or three centuries. But um, Dr. Steinberg, thank you very, very much for joining us. How are you? I hope you're well and um, enjoying the, the new year, our new year, and just being well. Thank you. I, I am, and thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, let me just start with the title, You and Your Adult Child. So. Yeah. Um, this and by the way, in all the workshops, especially the grandparenting workshops, the, the the a lot of the stuff that we do um, as part of our teaching in Jewish sacred aging and congregations and JCCs around North America, uh, the is a lot of the issues that you raise come up all the time, all the time. So, could you define for me when you say you and your adult child, because as we talked a little bit before um, we went on. There's differences between our, my adult child when he's 25 or 30 and when he or she is 45 and 50. Right. Talk to me um, about that. Well, let me, uh, let me begin by saying that this was a, a very long conversation between my editor and me. Um, it was very hard to come up with the right term because in the English language, I'm not sure about other languages, we don't have a word um, that refers to the age range that I was interested in. You know, we have infants and children and teenagers and so on. Um, often in psychology, we, we talk about young adults. Sometimes we talk about emerging adults. But those terms are typically reserved for people who are in the first half of their 20s. Um, I don't think that most people who are 35, let's say, would think of themselves as young adults. Um, so we didn't want to use either of those terms. And I wanted the book to be for parents with children in their 20s and 30s, because I think it's different after that, although maybe that's a sequel that, uh, you know, that I don't the know. Next book. The next one. Um, we, we struggle with all kinds of things. And, and, um, you know, when you're, when you're, one of the hard things to do is to come up with a title that's going to reach the audience that you want to reach. And we couldn't make it so long, let's say, that it said you and your child who is in their 20s or 30s. So we just said, let's call it what it is. It's an adult child. And if some readers want to read it because they have a child who's in their 40s, that's, that's fine. Some of the issues apply. But the target really was for appearance of, of people in their 20s and 30s. Um, if, if you want, we could talk about the origins of the book and why that is. Yeah, what yes, it I, is. I, that you anticipated the next question. 
Yeah. Um, so it wasn't my idea. Um, my training and my expertise is in adolescence and young adulthood. Um, but uh, AARP, the organization that supports adults who are 50 and older, um, approached Simon & Schuster, with whom they have a long-standing publishing arrangement, and said, we're hearing from a lot of our members with kids in their 20s and 30s that they're having trouble with a lot of parenting issues. And we'd like you to find somebody to write a book about this. Wow. And just complete luck for me, um, the person that they called at Simon & Schuster happened to be my editor. And so my editor called me. He had edited my previous book. Um, my editor called me and said, are you willing to take this on? And I, I, I um, it worked well for me, given where my thinking was at the time, for two reasons. Um, the first is that at the time this call came through, our son was um, in his mid-30s, and his wife was also in, in her mid-30s, and um, they had just had a child. Um, so I was living it. And I also, in, in the last book I wrote, I talked a lot about the elongation of adolescence and how it was taking people longer and longer to make the transition into adulthood and the implications of that for their psychological welfare and, and, and uh, psychological development. But I hadn't given any thought at all to how this longer adolescence was affecting parents. And clearly it is, um, but I hadn't thought about it much and I hadn't written about it much. So this book then became an opportunity for me to learn as well as right about what it's like to be the parent of someone who in the past would have been a, a full-fledged mature adult, but who now was in this new space. Right. And, and how is that affecting parents? And I'm sure that when you speak to the congregations that you've spoken to, that I, I would be surprised if they didn't think there were issues um, that were surprising and perplexing. Oh, no, that's why I have a page and a half of notes uh, to ask you about everything from, you know, uh, my 28 year old has just moved back. Yeah. Uh, to financial support. Yeah. To a term that I, I came across many years ago in one other book. Uh, this is a long time ago. Uh, with this difference of maturing and the author, I don't, it's a book stuck in one of those shelves back there mm -hmm. somewhere. Uh, called middle essence. So in other words, instead of middle yeah. age, it was this, ex like you were talking about, extended adolescence into what used to be called, you know, middle age, 20, 30s and 40s, but everything's been moved right in 15 years up the road. So you, you alluded to this about the, the changing nature of relationships. Yeah. Um, and at the very, very beginning of the book, you have this absolutely wonderful scene. Um, um, I think it was with your father. Yes. And you, you wanted to talk about relationships. And he turns around and he says, um, I'll, let me quote the book so I don't mess it up. He looked at me as if I wanted to discuss time travel or space aliens, quote, what relationship I'm your father, unquote. Yep. There's a shift in that, isn't there? In, a, in our generation. Talk about right. that. Um. Well, the current generation of parents with kids in their 20s and 30s 
has been exceptionally involved in their children's lives from the moment they were born. Um, they, they, you know, they, they searched for preschool like it was a life and death decision. <laughs> um, they, they went to, uh, they, they went to a back, back to school nights with notebooks so that they could write down everything every teacher said. And they're the parents that we make fun of because they stand on the sidelines at the soccer games and scream. Um, and we, we were seeing on college campuses that the parents were very involved in their kids' college admissions applications, sometimes even writing the, the essay, much, you know, much less proofing. And so, um, and they wanted to have a relationship with, with their child. Um, my, my parents couldn't have been more different than that. So my father was born in 1926. He was of that generation. Um, he, he, he didn't talk about feelings or emotion. He was a wonderful father, very warm. We had a great alcohol relationship, but, um, it, it, the language didn't make sense to him. And, and as I, and I as I say in the book, um, you can't imagine a father saying what my father said to me to a child today. You know, that is relationship. What do you mean by that? I'm, I'm your parent. So, um, so today's parents are very different. And I think that they're struggling with boundaries because they're not sure if the degree of involvement that they've expressed so far is something that they ought to continue. Um, and as, as we'll discuss, their interest in being so involved comes into conflict with their adult child's need for independence and autonomy. And so there's a, a, a kind of dance that's going on in families at this age where they're trying to figure out. And, you know, the AARP people who said to the organization, we need help, said there are no resources out there. And so we are really in a different time. You, you before mentioned, you know, the kind of question people ask. My 28-year-old has moved back in. Well, I'm sure you know, I don't know whether all of your audience knows, that that the most common living arrangement for Americans in their 20s today is living with one or both of their parents. And what a lot of people don't recognize is that this was never the case at any point in the 20th century, even during the height of the Great Depression. So it's uncharted territory. And nobody knows what the rules are. Nobody knows what the guidelines are. Um, and nothing out there, as far as I could tell, w was, was addressing that. Um, and, and I get asked this question too. Should my, uh, my kids move back home? Should, should they be doing chores? Should they be paying rent? Should I be nagging them when they're not going out and looking for a job, which is why they're living with us because they don't have enough money to rent their own? place. So I think this is a perplexing, challenging issue that a lot of families are dealing with. So you alluded to something that I, I really wanted to, to ask you about because it comes up all the time. And that's what I call borders and boundaries. Yeah. And this shifting, you know, last month on Rosh Hashanah in many synagogues, they read the sacrifice of Isaac, binding of Isaac, the Akedah from Genesis 22. 
which has a myriad of explanations. But one of the modern interpretations, I don't know how many colleagues walk this walk, um, is really, you know, at, at, at the end, Abraham comes down from the, uh, the, the mountain alone and Isaac disappears. And this goes to this, in many cases, exactly what you're talking about. There are new borders and boundaries now that have to be established. There's this tension that I think our generation feels more than anybody else of holding on and letting go. How do we let go of this 38 year old child, you know, not a child, but, you know, as you're talking about the intense involvement. So talk to me a little bit about you as your research and, and as you walk through the book and everything, this, what I call this borders and boundaries tension. Well, I, I think that it's, of course, more difficult to let go when you've been so involved for so long. Um, and, uh, you know, j- just earlier, you, you were texting with them every day. When <laughs> my undergraduates at Temple um, have to turn their cell phones off during exam week because their parents are texting <laughs> them too often, uh, not because their friends are bothering them. So, so j- just think of these parents. Now, all of a sudden, I'm supposed to not be involved anymore. I mean, they, they don't, they don't, the parents have trouble with that. Um, at the same time, the kids are wanting, understandably, to feel like competent, capable adults. And so they, 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 they love their parents and they want to still have them in their lives, but they don't want them to micromanage the way that they may have done Previously, now this is all complicated by the f- financial issues, because there's, as, as I would describe it, there's there's an inherent conflict between the financial dependence of the child, the adult child, on their parents, and the emotional independence that is normal for them to seek. And a lot of parents ask me. If the fact that they're still supporting their 35-year-old financially gives them the right to express opinions about how their 35-year-old is spending the money that they're giving. Um, and, of course, that just clashes with the child's notion that, you know, I need your financial help because the cost of housing is so much, not because I'm lazy or not because I'm incompetent. I mean, and and so. I think this is a struggle in, in lots of homes. So I do, I do think that the borders and boundaries are established, but they're established gradually. Um, and it's just like any other developmental transition that as that parents go through with their kids, whether it's when they are, you know, turning three or 13 or, or now 30. You you have to renegotiate the terms of the relationship. There's an element of loss in this, which I don't think we ever, a lot of people don't really talk about it. I mean, I, yeah. as we get older, our, our children get older. Yeah. There is a, there is a loss there. It's not yes. like it used to be, but I yeah. have to ask as a professor of psychology, because this has come up also. And as I was reading through the book, you know, it also bubbled up in my in my head as I'm reading the book. How much of this desire uh, on the part of, let's say, baby boomers to be very, very still involved with our adult children has to do with 
um, a fear of our own mortality. Our children are getting older. That means we're getting older. That means we're going to die. And that's something else I don't want to, I want to hold on to. Has there been any, you know, have you researched this? Is there any? I, I, you know, I, I think it, I think it, it may come up. Um, now remember to, that the book is addressed for parents with children in their twenties and thirties. Right, right. And so right, most right. of those parents are not really Correct. grappling yet with, with an imminent death. I do think it comes up, and I mention this in the book, when parents have a conversation with their kids about their own financial future, the parents' own financial future. Correct, right. Um, and, and I think that that is a difficult topic because it's going to have to, if it's going to be honest, it's going to have to get into, um, are, are you, you, am I going to need you, my child, to help me when I'm infirm? Um, what are my plans? What plans for a will? Um, what am I likely to pass on to you? Now, a lot of parents avoid those issues because I think, just as you've said, it's a little too close to the, to the question of one's mortality. A lot of children avoid those issues because it's a little too close to the questions about their parents' mortality. Correct. And so Correct. that, that's clearly looming there. The other way I think it comes up is, it's a kind of role reversal, I think, that you find as you get into your late 60s or early 70s, that all of a sudden your child is a lot better at a lot of things than you, right? And so now you have to go to your child and say, I can't carry this carton of books up three flights of stairs. Can you do that for me? Um, and, and, and I think that that change, that, that role reversal, does it has to remind you that you're getting that you're getting older and you're getting progressively a little bit weaker? I don't want to exaggerate that. There are lots of people in their seventies who are in great health, but there will come a time when you're going to need your child to do some physical labor for you because you're not your balance isn't good enough, right, or absolutely. you're not strong enough, or you're not fast enough, and and all those things are things that we don't like to think about. You. You have a section in the book. I, I think you actually titled one of the paragraphs, uh, quote, when I was your age, unquote, which I, when I read it, I chuckled and, and said, Oh, yes, 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 yes. How many times that slipped out and the, and, and your kids would say, Yes, but you're not, <laughs> or yeah. this is not 1972 anymore, you know. Yeah. Get with it. Talk to me a little bit. You, you wrote about that. I'll tell you. Yeah. Not only don't use it, don't think it. <laughs> because it's a, it's a, when, when we came up with the subtitle to the book, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times, we meant challenging times in two different ways. We meant it in terms of the fact that this is a challenging developmental period, this 20s and 30s, but we are also living in challenging times. And the challenging times that we're living in historically are what make the period of becoming an adult and moving into adulthood very different today than it was in previous generations. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, and it didn't get into the book because it happened after the book was published. I was recording the audiobook version and I was working with two 
people in their late 20s, the producer and the sound engineer. And they had to pay very close attention to every single word I said, because it's their job to get me to retape sentences that don't sound right. And for each of them, it was their first exposure to the book, that neither of them had read the book. And after the first day of recording, the producer, a young woman, took me aside and she said, my parents have got to read this book because they don't understand me. And three days later, without knowing that she had had that conversation with me, the sound engineer said, I'm going to buy a copy of this book from my parents because they don't understand what it's like to be our age now. And so that's why I say, get rid of the when I was your age mentality. You were their age, but the times were very, very different. And I, I think it also comes up because a question that is in the back or front of a lot of parents' minds is, is my kid floundering? Because, and, and why are they asking that? They're asking that because they're not as far along in their progress into adulthood as they, the parent, was at the same age. And so they were. My kid's not married, and he's already 33. Right. right. Well, you know, that is normal today. Is, that wasn't is. normal when their parents were um, courting somebody. Or how come my, my kid doesn't know what he wants to do with his life? He's already 27. Well, that's normal today to not know what you want to do with your life when you're 27. But I think if my parents had seen me not knowing what I wanted to do with my life when I was 27, 28, 29, I think they would have worried about it because it would have been so atypical and non-normative. Yeah. The, the, um, the demographics of the Jewish community in America, especially the liberal Jewish community have moved 10, seven to 10 years up the road. So yes. I, um, I would say you could take, I mean, we're, you live in Philly. I'm right outside of Philly. You could take every non-Orthodox rabbi in the greater Philadelphia area of which there are hundreds, um, and say, I will bet you that that the majority of first marriages that you've done in the last five years are not people 23, 24, 25. No, no, no. As I was a kid. There are yeah. people like a couple I just married. First marriage, both bride and groom, 35 years of age. Yes, and that's very common. That's and very and common. everything has shifted um, older, all the way up, up the line. So it, it bears right. out exactly what you're saying. So I so I so I suggest a little formula in the book for parents who have this way of thinking. If you want to compare where your child is to where you were at the same time, subtract five years from your age. In other words, if your child is thirty-five, don't think about what you were like when you were thirty-five. Think about what you were like when you were thirty. Mm-hmm. And if you if you do that calculation you'll have a a better estimate of whether your child is in fact floundering or whether they may be doing just fine. One of the issues that you talk about is a comes up, to be honest with you, just came up yesterday in a conversation I had with a couple. Very painful. And that's estrangement. Yeah. Could you, could you, could you talk a little bit about, because there are more people who are dealing with this uh, than I think we really want to admit. Well, um, when I first agreed to do the book, 
like most authors, I wanted to know what else was out there. And I went to the various online bookstores and I looked at, you know, parents of adult children. And the vast majority of the books were about estrangement. And they made assertions in the, you know, in the flap copy for the book that I found very hard to believe. Um, and they all referred to a particular article that had appeared in the popular press that said that 25% of adult children were estranged from their parents. Right. And I thought, this does not seem right to me. I mean, I said, I, I, I honestly don't believe this. And so I went to the research literature. It, well, there are a couple of points to make. The first is that estrangement is defined in very loose ways that vary a lot from study to study. Um, some people define estranged as not getting along with rather than having cut off communication with, which is how I think of estrangement. Um, if you look at the actual families that report estrangement, the vast majority of them, 80% of them, have a child who's estranged from a parent that never really was in their life to begin with. Now, that's very different, right? So you have a family where, I mean, the typical scenario, the child was two years old, let's say, and the mother and the father aren't getting along. And maybe the father has some problem that the mother is concerned about. And she leaves or she kicks him out of the house. So now the child grows up without ever really knowing that person and would say, yes, I'm estranged from my father. But I don't think that that's what we mean when we think that there's a problem of estrangement that's widespread. So only about 8% of, of adult children are estranged from parents in a way that I think the word means, which is you were once close to them, and for whatever reason, you've broken off contact with them or they from you, and it's lasted, you know, more than a, more than a month, more than a couple of months. That number is very small, very small. But painful nonetheless. Um, painful nonetheless. And, you know, look, um, 8% is not a small number when you think no. about how many millions of people there are um, out there. I think that looking at the reasons for estrangement um, is, is very helpful. Um, a, a, a one very big reason is that the parents can't accept the child's sexuality. And so their child comes out or their child announces a different gender identity, um, and the parents say, we can't, you're not our child anymore. And the child says, well, then I'm not going to talk to you. You know, I mean, it's as, it, it's as simple as that. Sometimes a, a relationship between a parent and a child becomes so conflicted that it's so emotionally taxing that one of them or even maybe both of them say, you know what, I, I think we're just better off not, not talking to each other. It's like, I'm sure that you've counseled couples who are contemplating divorce, and you may have thought after a while, you know, I, I, I think you two would be better off if you didn't stay married to each other. Correct. Well, um, I, yeah, yes, yes. It's, it's a mutual, the estrangement can be mutual for the for a higher value. Yes, right. yes. Exactly. But you, you, you just alluded something that else is really becoming 
um, more prevalent uh, for a variety of reasons, which is, which is another program. But that's the, um, the parent who now has to deal with their child who is transitioning, gender transitioning, mm-hmm. coming out and in the psycho, psycho spiritual, psychological framework. How does that, it, it does lead to estrangement. Sometimes it can lead to an embrace and a mm-hmm. support. I love you. I love you. No matter what you choose. This is right. your, okay. Can you talk a little bit about, um, how a parent can begin to handle that because it's, sure. it's happening more and more and more. Right. Well, the, the, the first thing I want parents to understand is your child has made a revelation to you that was very hard for them to make, especially if it's happening when they're already an adult. Because most people who are um, gay or who are trans, they they figure this out about themselves when they're teenagers, not when they're young adults. So they've been holding on to this secret and keeping it from their parents for a very long time. So I tell parents, it took your child an incredible amount of courage to make this disclosure to you. And it says something about how they feel about you as a parent. You have to accept. You absolutely have to accept. You may not like it. It may disappoint you. It may make you worried about, am I ever going to be a grandparent or whatever. Whatever. But, but, but what I remind parents is, look, This person who has made this revelation to you is the same person as they were before they made the revelation. They're just telling you something else about themselves that you didn't know. And so now you know your child better than you did before. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I also say that um, it's going to take time for everybody here to adjust. There's a very good organization, a national organization called PFLAG, P-F-L-A-G, that supports families that are having trouble um, with a, a child's revelation that they're sexually nonconforming is the awful term that's used by people in our field. But um, it's a very good organization with national chapters uh, you know, all over the country. And so if you are listening to this and you're going through this, and you can't seem to figure it out on your own, go to pflag.org online and they, and they will hook you up with, with other people in your community who are dealing with similar issues. Yeah, we're speaking with Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, a professor of psychology at Temple University in Philadelphia and the author of You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. Dr. Steinberg, in your research and in the, uh, uh, for the book, um, how often have you run across parents who, for a variety of reasons, use money as a controlling mechanism? Um, I don't run across many parents who, whom I would describe that way. I do run across many parents who wonder what kind of control they should exert when they're helping their child financially. I I, I haven't now. I, I'm limited to the sample of people that contact me or right, that come right. up to talk to me if I'm giving a lecture. Um, 
I, I, I think they have questions about it, but I've, I've never met anybody who explicitly said or admitted that they use money as a way of manipulating their child's behavior. Now, I think you might get a different answer to that question if you ask the adult children if they felt that their parents were using money to exert control over them. Um, but it, it is the, the, the most common question I'm asked. Really? It concerns financial assistance and how to work, and how to work this out. Um, yeah, because th this is the big unexpected issue, right? There aren't very many parents out there, I think, who thought that they were going to have to be financially supporting their child when their child was in their 30s. And a lot of them are. And there aren't very many people out there who thought that when they were in their 30s, they were going to have to ask their parents for financial help. And so both generations are dealing with, you know, what, what we would call a violation of expectations. And when, when we go through life with certain expectations and things don't turn out that way, it really does a number on our mental health. And I think it becomes a very difficult situation when uh, the, the parent and the child are both kind of uncomfortable about doing something that they have no choice but to do. You know, you, you use the term mental health, and we're in the midst of, uh, I think, between the popular press and the scholarly press, a crisis in mental health in this country. Yes. And thankfully, in the first third of the book, you have um, four tips on managing mental health um, from love and stress and help parental stress and helping children manage your adult children manage their stress stress um, and talking about vulnerabilities mm -hmm. because this is so prevalent and it mm -hmm. is in the book thankfully um, and so many parents maybe not maybe are dealing with this because it has mm -hmm. a ripple effect on their own mental health. Right. Talk to me a little bit about your four points. Well, uh, uh, th let's just start with an understanding of what contributes to mental health problems. Um, it is usually the intersection of, of some kind of vulnerability, uh, maybe the mental uh, health problem runs in your family. Um, there's a genetic influence on lots of mental health uh, uh, issues. Um, maybe it's a vulnerability because you're at a stage in life where your brain is especially susceptible to the environment, which is the case during adolescence and young adulthood. So you've got a particular vulnerability and you combine that with some kind of stress. And that's often th the, the trigger. And we know this because we know that there are people who can be exposed to the very same stress and one will develop a mental health problem and one won't. And that's because they have different degrees of vulnerability. And we know people who have the same vulnerabilities, um, but, but don't develop the mental health problem in the same way or maybe not at all. And that's because their level of stress exposure is very different. So what this means to me as a psychologist is that um, we have to learn how to manage stress. Um, the, the, when people, you know, people come to me and ask me about this crisis and the trends in mental health problems. 
and they ask what's causing it. Uh, and I say a lot of things. And I then start to tick them off. And I say, look, there is no shortage of things to be depressed about these days, especially for, for young adults. Climate change, the uncertain economy, the, the incredible increase in the cost of housing, the political divisiveness that we live with it, the idea that pandemics are going to be a way of life in the future, the threats to women's reproductive autonomy, bigotry and racism. I mean, and, and not to mention the fact that this generation of young people has been told over and over and over again that they will never have a life that's as nice as their parents' life. Now, if you want to depress somebody, why don't you tell them that every week, right? So to me, the most important thing you can do as a parent is, first of all, to not be an additional source of stress for your child. And second, to help them learn how to manage stress in healthy ways. And I suggest some specific things that people can do. Meditation is very helpful for stress management. Exercise is very helpful for stress management. Sleep is very helpful for stress management. Um, and um, so that, I think, would be the most important thing that parents can do. You can also help your child get help. Um, and one thing I spend a lot of time in that chapter talking about is the limits on how involved parents can be in their adult children's mental health care. Because there are very strict laws governing privacy and disclosure. Um, but you can help your child find help. Now, whether you're going to be a part of the therapy or the treatment is going to be up to the therapist and your child, not up to you. Um, and so the, to love, support, help with um, learning how to cope with stress and not being a stressor yourself to your child would be four really important things for parents to do. There may be other tips in the chapter. I don't have the book open in front of me, um, but if there's another one in there that I missed, please um, re remind me and let our audience know. You know the, 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 um, the stress in, the, in this particular chapter about you know, minimizing stress and um, open conversation about, you, you, you say, uh, uh, tell your child about any vulnerabilities that they may not know about, et cetera. It's, it goes back to something you were saying at the beginning about open communication, the fluidity of the relationships, because right. those relationships change as we grow older, as our children grow older. And also, if you have multiple children, as we have all experienced, right, a child A, you may deal with one way, but that way doesn't work with child B or C. They're very right. different individuals. That's right. Um, and, and what good parents do is they're able to adapt their parenting to fit their child's temperament, you know, without a wholesale throwing away what, what you know to be good parenting, you can tweak it in a way that's more suitable for each of your children. And, and thankfully also, and, and for those of you, and, and I really urge you to try it and, and get this book, um, Dr. Steinberg d deals with, you know, step parenting and the residuals of divorce, because again, given the statistics, especially within, you know, our community in the United States, um, the challenges of being a step parent and different borders and boundaries, because there's a whole different set of borders and boundaries, uh, right. that deal with that. And 
psycho-spiritual issues that emerge from that. And that's also covered within the book. Um, before we run out of time, of all the, 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 the material that you've researched, there, there's probably a parents of the age that we're talking about listening or watching this or going, what's the one, I know it's a softball question. What's the, what's the one piece of advice that's constant that you would give these parents of adult children? To, to, to understand that this is a, a time when it's normal for a child to want autonomy um, and to individuate from parents and to, to support that, to not take it personal. And so when you think that you're being well-meaning and well-intentioned by giving your child unsolicited advice, bear in mind that that may come into conflict with your child's need to feel that I'm a competent, capable adult who loves my parents, but who doesn't need them to make these important decisions for me. And so when your child says, I don't, I don't want your help on this, um, or when they roll their eyes at your suggestion, even if it's well-intended, just understand that they're going through a period of development that's tricky for them as well. And if you can understand that, I think you can build a, a much stronger and better relationship. And one final word on that. I know we're running out of time. Okay. This, when this issue gets worked through, and it does get worked through, you'll have a really strong friendship with this person because they won't have to reject your advice anymore because they will feel competent on their own. Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, uh, the author of You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times, Simon & Schuster, available at the usual suspects where you get your books, either Brick and Mortar or The, the Great God Amazon. Dr. Steinberg, thank you very, very much. Uh, there's so much in here, uh, and I appreciate your time and uh, your willingness to come on to Seekers of Meaning and talk about it. And I wish you just a, a year of health and joy and peace and enjoy the new grandchild, enjoy the grandchild, the children you have, and just stay healthy. Okay, so thank you thank very you. much. Come you too, the book. and Happy New Year to you. Thank you again for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, if you'd like to support our work, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the donate button and just follow the prompts. If you'd like to become a sponsor of some of these podcasts, again, just email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in absolutely perfect Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a big shout out to our producer, Steve Lubeck. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very, very much. Keep in touch. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and I look forward to seeing you on our next edition of Seekers of Meaning. And until that time, please stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy. And most of all, be kind to one another. Take care. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom.